going, kids, uh, preschool through fifth grade, you are free to go to your classrooms. Okay, let's begin uh, by praying together. Holy Spirit, uh, thank you for being ever-present and available to us. And I pray that each of us here in this room today would be open to your prompting, to your teaching, to what you have to say to us, whether it's receiving or extending, or both of the forgiveness that you've given us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the great peacemaker. Amen. On the day that I sat down across from my abuser, it had been nearly 40 years. Because of the nature of our relationship, we had seen each other during those years. It was sporadic, but we did have contact. And from the moment he said to me as a five-year-old boy, shh, don't tell anyone, the peace faking began. He kept up the fake peace because it kept him safe from consequences of what he had done. I kept up the fake peace because it kept me safe from the shame of what had been done to me. But in that moment, 40 years later, there was no more faking. The truth was out, and I had a choice to make. Forgive or not. He had confessed. He had apologized. He had repented. I couldn't deny it was sincere. It seemed that to forgive him was the only possible choice. But as my thoughts began to race beyond what had been done to me, to the consequences, the countless ways it had shaped me, I felt the choice getting harder and harder to make. You see, it wasn't until I was much older that I began to realize the repercussions. What it means to have been sexualized as a five-year-old boy, the pressure it created, I mean, imagine a child, five, six, nine years old, trying to figure out how to manage a sex life that had been awakened in him ten years at least too early. It shapes you into a liar. It makes you a manipulator, a sneak, a shame. It colors your view of everyone and everything. It becomes the most important thing about you. It shapes the way you see girls, the way you treat women, the goals you set, what you wear, what you spend your time and money on. It shaped my marriage. It shaped my parenting. It shaped everything. How can I, how can I forgive all that? How can I forget that thing that shaped my entire life? After considering all that, how could I possibly forgive? The stakes were pretty high. I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a Christian, a representative of Jesus Christ, and the person seeking my forgiveness was not. So what I chose to do was going to reflect directly on who Jesus is and who his church is. I knew what God expected of me. I've taught about forgiveness. I've received forgiveness. I believe in the power of forgiveness. But at that moment, 
it was simply stuck. Like a pipe clogged solid or a rusty hinge, there was no movement in my heart. At the same time, my mind was frantically leaping and spinning with scriptures. Like Matthew 18, verse 32. It's at the climax of Jesus' central teaching on conflict resolution. He ends the story of a servant who refused to forgive with these words, quote, Then the master called that servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you, if, uh, each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's rattling around in my mind, along with Ephesians 4.32, which you heard Bet reference. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians chapter 3, bear with each other with, e with each other, and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I was thinking about the saying that I've shared hundreds of times with people who are struggling with unforgiveness. Well, unforgiving is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. I started running down the list of things I'd been forgiven for in an effort to try to shake this loose. I was stuck. I realized I was inside a closed system. What's a closed system? Well, the earth is a closed system. For example, there is only so much water on earth. I mean, it's not like we're making more of it. And none of it is leaving. It just moves around inside the closed system. If the climate gets colder, the water is stored in the form of ice in enormous glaciers. It gets warmer, the ice melts, and the sea levels rise. There's no more or less water. You know, the next time you buy a $4 bottle of designer water, just remember those water molecules have been around for several billion years. The water in that bottle has been in oceans. It has been in clouds. It has been inside other human beings. It has been in mud puddles and trees. It's been drunk before. Fish have swam in it, and people have spat it out of their mouths. It's a closed system. There's only so much water to go around the place. Come back with me. Don't go to the water. Come back. Some of you are freaking out now. We're talking about forgiveness. Come back. Okay, closed system. As mentioned earlier, there is a drought in Malawi. Right now, as much as we would like to, we can't simply make water for them. We'd have to send our water. And then there would be a drought here. Zero-sum game. I was stuck in a closed system of forgiveness. There's only so much forgiveness available. And if I give my forgiveness, then well, it's going to cost me. There's only so much water to go around, after all. If I gave my abuser all my water, then I die of thirst. So in this, our final week of our Peacemaker series, we come to the sticking point. Forgiving. All peacemaking roads lead to this destination. Forgiveness asked for, forgiveness given, and forgiveness received. So let's define it. First, forgiveness is not excusing, forgetting, or a feeling. It is not excusing, forgetting, 
or a feeling. First, let's look at this idea of excusing. Forgiveness is the opposite of excusing. The very fact that someone is asking for forgiveness means they are admitting a wrong was done. And by offering your forgiveness, you are agreeing with them. Excusing means that it wasn't really wrong or that it really couldn't be helped. Forgiveness means that there was a debt incurred, something real and bad was done, and that needs attention. Likewise, forgetting. As we think of it, forgetting is a passive process. It happens to us. But forgiving is an active process. When we speak of forgetting an offense, we speak of it in the sense of God forgetting our sins. Isaiah chapter 43, where God says, He remembers your sins no more. Well, this is not a case of the all-knowing God somehow becoming incapable of remembering. It's not like He can't remember your sins. It's that He chooses not to recall them. He chooses not to dwell on them, bringing them up, or identifying you by them anymore. And finally, feelings. Too often... We are expecting to experience an emotional sensation when we forgive. Maybe a warmth, an affection should be swelling, unbidden within us. It may be akin to the feeling you get when you see a beautiful sunset or hear a joke or watch a tear-jerking movie. It comes on you. It overtakes you. And sometimes a forgiveness experience will produce feelings. Sometimes it will not. It is no more a feeling than applause is the feeling of pride. Don't expect forgiveness to happen to you. Don't wait for a physical, spiritual, or emotional sensation to precede forgiveness. It doesn't always work like that. And don't doubt the reality of forgiveness because a particular feeling doesn't proceed from the forgiveness. And I can say that because forgiveness is a decision Forgiveness is a decision. True forgiveness has never just happened. It's not a natural phenomenon. It's not like a rainstorm or an earthquake. It's not a disease you catch or a chance occurrence. No one has ever accidentally been forgiven. Forgiveness has never been discovered. It's not hiding in the rainforest like a previously unknown plant. It's not buried in a mine somewhere waiting to be dug out. It's not a naturally occurring substance. Forgiveness is the direct extension of will. It is made. Forgiveness is imagined, manufactured, and deployed from within a person. Forgiveness is always by design. Now, two of the scriptures I shared with you earlier contain another really specific characteristic of true forgiveness. And again, Bet referenced this in her testimony, Ephesians 4.32. Forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. In Colossians 3, forgive as the Lord forgave you. These are important characteristics of forgiveness. It's to be modeled after God. We are called to forgive like God forgave us, which is not like we tend to forgive each other. I want you to imagine God saying some of the things we say to one another disguised as forgiveness. Imagine God saying to you, I forgive you, but uh, I can never forget what you did. I just want you to imagine the lover of your soul, creator of the universe, saying that to you. Imagine him saying, I forgive you, but I don't really want to be around you anymore. 
Imagine him saying, well, I'm ready to forgive you as soon as you pay me back. Or, you're going to have to earn my forgiveness. So, how are we supposed to forgive? Ken Sandy breaks that down into what he calls the four promises of forgiveness. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. But I can't help it. The thoughts pop in my head all the time. It's like a movie of what they did just boots up in my brain whether I want it to or not. I know, I know, you can't help that. You can't keep the memories from popping up any more than you can stop feeling hungry or thirsty. I know. But you can choose to dwell on those thoughts or you can replace them. Romans 12, verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You may not have a say in who shows up to the party, but you do have a say in who stays and drinks your beer. And you have a say in what goes on in your head. When you make the promise not to dwell, you're promising to throw the thoughts out when they show up, because of course they will. You're committing ahead of time to disregard the memories when they arrive. You remind yourself that you've done all the peacemaking work. You remember your decision and say out loud, if necessary, there is no God-honoring reason for me to think about this. Nothing good will come from thinking about it. This case is closed. It's finished, and I can literally ignore it. Everything will be okay, and I will be safe if I put this thought out of my head. Then, replace that thought with something else. A scripture about forgiveness that you've memorized. May I suggest Ephesians 4.32? A positive thought about the person you've forgiven. The thought that you've been forgiven very much, but the point is, displace this memory, this event, with something else. Second thing. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Now, I want you to imagine a football game where the defense is issued machetes. But the rule is they can only use it when they really need to. They can't just swing out the opponent any old time for any old reason. That would be a penalty. But, you know, when it really gets important, when it really gets out of hand, the machete is going to come out. Well, is anybody ever going to run the ball again? No, of course not. The game of football, as we know it, is over at that point. And when we say we've forgiven someone, but then pull the old offense out when we really need it to make a point, to protect ourselves, or hit back because of a new offense, we've completely defeated the purpose of peacemaking, which is to restore. The game's over. When you pull that thing out of the sheath and you deploy it again, game over. If our former opponent knows that they can be swung at with their old offense, they're not likely to come near us. Now, this does not mean that the subject can never come up again, but we are committing to discussing it as a past, completed, former kind of thing, not an active issue influencing current events. Third thing, I will not talk to others about this incident. I was just venting to them. Uh, I still need to process this with someone. They don't even know who you are. Well, these are all excuses given for dragging the old offense out in front of other people. Now, there may be cases where sharing part of your story would be helpful. I, I began this talk with 
my own story, but it is and will remain anonymous. If your former opponent agrees to let the story be shared, that's one thing. And the terms of sharing should be made clear and agreed to. But to simply begin sharing the story, to process the story, uh, to vent about it, to gain sympathy, allies, or leverage by talking about it means you haven't fully forgiven. Not like God has forgiven you. Now this is not a prohibition from ever allowing the subject to come up in a conversation. It is instead a check on your motivations and a check up on the state of your forgiveness. Fourth, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Now that first promise, I will not dwell on this incident, that is an unconditional promise. You can choose not to dwell on the incident no matter what the offender does or does not do. They may repent, they may not, but it is up to you as to whether you adopt an attitude of forgiveness as seen in that first promise. But these last three promises, they are conditional. And the condition is the repentance of the offender. Without repentance, it's not possible to say you will never bring the incident up again that you will never talk about it or never let it come between you. You may need to do exactly those things until such a time as the offender repents. You can and should maintain an attitude of forgiveness, but you may not be able to grant forgiveness, as seen in these last three promises, until the offender repents. For example, a colleague is repeatedly bad-mouthing your work to superiors without cause. Your colleague denies it when confronted, but the behavior abruptly stops. Well, you can adopt an attitude of forgiveness, but you won't dwell on it any longer. But you may be called on to address it with a superior if asked, and you may need to keep a certain distance between you and that other person until that person finally does repent. There may be consequences which must be dealt with. Legal consequences, for example, like a restraining order or jail time. It's important to remember that consequences, though, are a different matter in that they are imposed by the circumstances and not by you in an effort to protect yourself or punish your opponent. But assuming your opponent has repented and offered a legitimate apology, godly forgiveness means we don't let the old issue serve as a roadblock to our relationship. Now, if you're anything like me, you look at those four promises and you swallow hard. When you think about the hurt that you're carrying, the anger, the injustice, the consequences, the scars, living up to this kind of forgiveness is, in a word, impossible. And you'd be right. Because we're stuck in a closed system closed system of forgiveness. If you forgive what they did to you, well, you take it into yourself. What about your needs? You can't just take on every offense every time like a doormat. God doesn't ask us to do that, does he? If we sent enough water to Malawi to fix their problem, well, guess what? Then we're in a drought. We've just moved the problem. We haven't fixed it. If I forgive you, the debt is still there. It's just that I'm paying it now, not you. 
if I don't take my pound of flesh, if I don't extract justice, compensation, and restitution from my abuser, where does that leave me? I'm the one bearing the pain. I'm the one who was wronged. I have to bear the cost. But who wants to keep bearing the cost? Who can keep bearing the cost through a lifetime of hurts? Who can do that? So when we can't get justice from the person who wronged us, we just repackage the offense and pass the cost down the line, don't we? We become the newest offender, the latest in a long line of abusers. Now, perhaps we don't do the same things, commit the same offenses, but we find ways to pass the cost on. The boss's wife treats him badly. And rather than forgiving, he then takes it out on you at the office. Rather than you forgiving him, you take it out on the kids when you get home. And rather than them forgiving you, they kick the dog. It's a closed system. See, human justice systems try to trace things back to their source and then fix it there. In other words, who hurt the boss's wife? Ah, we'll go figure that out, fix that, problem solved. But in no time, you realize you're on a never-ending hunt for someone to be held responsible. It's always the last person's fault. It was your dad's fault, and of course, he's going to blame his dad, and then it's grandpa's fault, and before you know it, you're on a long trip all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Interesting. About a year after the encounter with my abuser, you can imagine my surprise when... While sitting in my office discussing an altogether other matter, a different individual confessed to being an abuser, the abuser of my abuser. I was looking into the eyes of the person who wrecked the person who wrecked me. And as you may have already surmised, he told me the story of the person that had wrecked him. Rage built in me. I wanted somebody to pay. Who started this? Somebody has to be held accountable. And almost instantly, the Holy Spirit gently drew my attention to my own rap sheet. The countless ways I had carried my own pain downstream to others. I was just as culpable as anyone else in this long line of brokenness. So how could I be the one to cry out for justice? Instead, I found myself crying out with Paul from Romans chapter 7. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. When there's only so much justice, when there's only so much forgiveness, when the things that have been done to you pile up over your head so that the only option is that you let it collapse on you or you push it off to whoever happens to be next to you, your only hope 
is that forgiveness comes in from outside that closed system. Somebody has to stop the cycle. Someone has to find a way to forgive and not pass the debt along. And the only way we can do that is to connect to a source of forgiveness outside our puny, under-resourced little system of justice. Someone has to reach into heaven where God's forgiveness is unlimited while at the same time they keep their feet right here on the ground so that the forgiveness reaches us. A bridge must be built between perfect forgiveness and the land where it is needed. A pipeline must be opened between the dry and parched land where we live and the source of living water. Can you not see the image of the cross of Jesus Christ in that? When Jesus spoke the words, it is finished from the cross, it was his declaration that he took on the debt. All of the debts. The price for what my abuser did, what I did in response, and every other evil response that has ever occurred and ever will fell on him in that moment. And because it did, the bridge was built. The pipeline of forgiveness was opened. The cross of Jesus Christ stands out over every other solution because it accesses power of forgiveness that comes from outside the closed system. Because think about it, politics just rearranges the injustices. Other religions still depend on us getting things right before their gods will act. And science and philosophy are really only good at describing the pain better. But the cross... The gospel of Jesus Christ is built on the character of the living God who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Psalm 103. It is the nature of God. It is in his character to forgive. The flow of his forgiveness to me is so complete so overwhelmingly sufficient, so abundant, that when by faith I accept it, I find there is now a flow of forgiveness through me, from the vertical to the horizontal. I could not forgive because I'm part of a closed system with only so much forgiveness. But through the cross of Christ, I can become a conduit for His forgiveness which first cleanses me and then flows outward. And I am crowned with love and compassion. So as I sat there across from my abuser, this person who had delivered so much pain into my life, I realized that even if I had the will to forgive, I didn't have the resources to forgive. I simply can't take on that debt. So I called out to God in that instant and confessed this to be true. God, I simply don't have it in me to forgive. I'm scared and I'm angry and I'm in over my head. And he said, I know, I know. Your desire to forgive is enough. I have forgiven 
before you. And then the words just spilled out of my mouth. I forgive you. Along with a tumble of other words confessing my anger and the mishandling of my own pain, a confession made to the one who had hurt me. And I found hope and fresh forgiveness flowing inside me as it flowed out to him. And something new entered the world. Something new. Peace. Where once there was none. Now, I'd like you to, uh, to be very aware of your posture. I want you to stay sitting, because in a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. But right now, I want you to stay sitting in a, in a posture to receive. I'm going to pray. And wherever you are in your life, you're in a position where you can receive God's forgiveness. Now, maybe this will be the first time that you've ever engaged in this transaction. Maybe... Maybe this is a daily experience for you, but I want you to stay seated. When I'm done, I'm going to ask you to stand because at the end of receiving, I'm going to commission you to then go out. So pray with me. Jesus, I can't do this anymore. I can't carry this weight. I can't carry the anger can't carry the bitterness in it, so I just lay it down. I don't even know how to forgive right. I just know that you've forgiven me. I know that you have forgiven me. And by faith, I accept that forgiveness again. I acknowledge that I have, I have made a wreck of my life, and I've made a wreck of lives around me, and I ask you to fill me with your forgiveness. I ask you to be the king and the Lord and the leader of my life. I want to walk in the way that you walk. I want to forgive the way you forgive. I want to learn. I want to, I want to be free in the way that you've promised to make me free. And I accept that gift of forgiveness. And I accept the gift of eternal life. And I accept all that you offer me anew today. Maybe for some of us for the first time. It's with gratitude we accept God. It's with gratitude we accept your forgiveness. And we accept it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now would you please stand because I want you to adopt a posture where you are now going to be ready. You have received and now you will go out. I want to sing this blessing to you. Go peaceful in gentleness through the violence of these days. Give freely, show tenderness in all your ways. Through darkness in troubled times, let Holiness be your aim. Seek wisdom, let faithfulness burn like a flame.
God speed you, God lead you, and keep you wrapped around his heart. May you be known by love. Be righteous, speak truthfully in a world of greed and lies. Show kindness, see everyone through heaven's eyes. God hold you, enfold you, and keep you wrapped around his heart. May you be known by love. May you be known by Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, peacemakers, you are free to go and carry that light with you out into a dark world. God bless you on your way. Thank you for being part of this series. We're going to stick around if you'd like for extended. In just a couple minutes, we're going to talk about forgiveness a little bit more.